like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 111. As we look at this passage of Scripture this evening, uh, Psalm, Psalm 111. Let us give attention uh, to this portion of God's Word. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my, with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. His pre, all his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is the word of God. Psalm 111 and Psalm 112, you could consider as twins. They are remarkably similar. Each one is, uh, has 22 lines to it. Uh, they are acrostic uh, sentences or acrostic, acrostic psalms. And that is each succeeding line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, Aleph, uh, Bet, and, and Gimel and so forth. What is more significant and even breathtaking than the artistic mirror image of these psalms is their content. Psalm 111 is speaking of God. It is speaking of His works, of His glory. It is speaking praise to God for what He has made for His works of redemption and for His commands. It is a God-saturated psalm. And, verse, and Psalm 112 is about the righteous man, the image bearer of God, made in his likeness uh, with a character similar to God's or mirrored after God's. Both Psalms contain the last phrase uh, in, um, in, uh, in verse 4. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. The righteous man is also gracious and merciful. Um, these are, are amazing descriptions then of God and the image bearer. And they are designed that we would grow in our fear of God. The righteous man is made like God unto in, in court in not, in, not only his character, but he imitates God. He, he fathers children. He is generous like God. In all of these ways, we want to grow in our in our fear of God, our, our praise of Him and, and our obedience to His commands. 
The psalm opens with the word hallelujah, praise Jehovah. And it, it occurs in the congregation, in the worship. All of God's people are assembled. The second description of God's people there, though, the company of the upright, refers in a more intimate and uh, emotive uh, context there, and, and that with the close ties of fellowship. It's like what we sing, blessed be the ties that bind. The upright, the company of the upright is an intimate, loving community focused upon the goal of, of knowing God and obedience to his command and therefore growing in the fear of God. We join in that wholehearted thanks and that full-throated praise. Now, I want you to flip over to verse 10 with me. We're going to get to verse 10, but I want to show you where we're headed. Verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All, who, all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The fear of God puts you on a path of wisdom. And this psalm is actually a psalm about the practice of the fear of God. It's how you, it's how you gain skill, experience of the fear of God in your life. You practice the fear of God and you gain more understanding of God and that creates greater fear of God. In fact, verses 2 through 9 really show us how to practice this fear of God. Verses 2 through 6 speak of knowing and studying God's works, his works of redemption in particular, and verses 7 through 9, keeping his commands. This is the, this is the dynamic that I want you to catch. The fear of God compels you to praise God and obey him. The fear of God compels you to praise him, to know him, to honor him, and to obey him. But then listen to this. The praising and the obeying of God deepens your fear of him. As you praise and, and bless and obey God, uh, you are deepening, ripening in your fear of him. First of all, then, we want to look at the practice of the fear of God that comes by studying his works. The practice, practice the fear of God by studying his works. This is in, in verses 2 through 6. Now, now the verses, uh, verse 2 it is written out over the archway of the Cavendish uh, Laboratory uh, in Cambridge, England. Uh, it is saying, great are the works of the Lord. This is a physics laboratory that is dealing with uh, as, a, analyzing and, and working out the, the, uh, the smallest building blocks of matter, whether atoms and, and, and also uh, subatomic matter, dealing with the energy of heat and light. It, it, is, it is a tip of the hat to the fact that God is the one who does these great works by creation in our world, and we study and delight in them. And that's okay. But that's not the weight of the psalm. The weight of the psalm are on the wondrous works of his redemption. And these works are spilled out, or spelled out rather, in verses 4 through 6. Three things I want you to keep in your mind tonight as we're looking at this. Three things. There is deliverance, there is a journey, and there is the inheritance of our final destination. 
There is deliverance, there is the journey, and there is that final destination. The deliverance, of course, in this context is the deliverance of Egypt, uh, from Egypt for his people. And he gives them, notice the verse says, he gives them a remembrance. He helps them to remember that great event. And of course, we get that through the Passover. Imagine imagine being the oldest son um, in in, uh, one of those homes in Israel. And and that five-year-old would see a lamb bloodied and, and the, 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 lamb, the lamb's blood splashed over the doorpost and on the sides of that doorway. And then he would be told that that, that lamb's blood was saving him from death. He would find out that there were other households that did not have the blood on them and the angel of death would come and a boy his age would be slaughtered. The deliverance that God promised and delivered uh, in, in Egypt would something that would, would grow in this young boy's heart. He did that to them, this little boy would think. But then he would also think, he did this for me. And his awe and his wonder would grow. And you take that knowledge then uh, in the journey Uh, Verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. This, many commentators say, is again speaking of of the, the journey to the promised land, where God gladly obligates himself to provide food for his people, and they get that blessing of manna for six days, but it lasts seven. And, and, and And the people again would say, God did this for us? He's providing for us. And they finally get to the journey's end and they receive their inheritance, the promised land, verse 6. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. And their fear of God would grow as they would walk around a city like Jericho. And then that last day, seven times around, and then the walls would come down as if set, as if detonated by bomb, well-placed bombs. And the people once again would say, God did that to them, and he has done this for us. Now, we enjoy the stories of the Old Testament, but they are clearly pointing us to the the greater story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's for us then to, to, to study and know God in Jesus for a deeper fear of God and Jesus accomplished our deliverance at Calvary. Deliverance, journey, and inheritance. Once again, deliverance, journey, and inheritance. The grace and mercy in the blood that flowed from his side spread its tributaries all the way to our day and age and to wash and cleanse us from sin. His deliverance includes you. We remember as well the sin-dominating power of the resurrection. And he says, do not forget that. You are not victims under the control of sin. You are raised with me to a new power. And he gives us food for our journey too in the Lord's Supper. He helps us to remember 
uh, the risen Christ gives us the bread and the cup, and he wants you to remember that he never forgets his promises. He wants you to remember he never forgets his promises. Two things that are important as we think of not only the Israelites going through their journey, but us going through ours. Two promises that sort of encapsulate what God provides for us in our journey is, is first of all, the Father's daily forbearance. The Father's daily forbearance. It is common for us to remember another person's sin against them. It is common for us to carry in our own hearts shameful memories of things that we've done in the past. And yet we read in in Proverbs chapter 8 that Jesus, who is described as the wisdom of God, rejoices in the inhabited world, delighting in the children of men. God's forbearance includes the delight that Jesus has for his people. The more you know the Father's love, the greater and sweeter your fear. This this word fear can be off-putting for us. And there are, there are fears in the Bible that we are said, you are, you are free from that. But there are other fears to which we are invited. See whether this helps. The trembling, slavish terror of the pre-conversion Luther's experience is what we are freed from. The trembling, slavish terror of pre-conversion Luther and we are instead delivered by the Spirit through the work of, of Jesus into a trembling filial, that is, sunlight or sonship, trembling filial wonder of a son. Jesus says, this is what you are never to forget on your journey. You have the Father's forbearance. You have the Father's merciful forgiveness. And how necessary is that when we face trouble in our way. The second, the second teaching that this psalm implies for us on our journey is this, that he has eyes, his eyes on you for your good. The Father's eyes are on you for your good. The works of his hands are faithful and just, verse 7. These here, the works of, of providence. Your journey is painful, and at times God seems distant, aloof, perhaps disinterested. And the way our law-ish hearts work uh, is, is saying something like this. He's holding out on me because I've blown it. He's holding out on me. He's not giving me what my heart desires because I'm in some way, I've just blown it. But he has his eye on you for his good, for your good, and he is always working. You do not need to bribe him by your behavior. You do not need to goad him into action. His, the works of his hands are faithful and just. His good and wise providence enables us, even when days are hard, to say God is purposeful, and God is sanctifying us. I spoke to a gentleman this morning, uh, another pastor who was uh, in 
in, in the worship service today. As we were talking about just going through the challenges of a long ministry. I'll just put it that way. He was sharing with me that, that God was, was, was teaching him that he had a small percentage of the strength that he once had but he could see in all of the difficulties of, of his life that God has been pruning him so that his heart is more and more devoted to God and happy even with that lesser amount of responsibility. Happy to be able to serve God with the strength he's given. That's an example of how, of how as, as we're going through our journey, we entrust ourselves to the Father's care and providence so we can serve him with a full heart in full-hearted obedience even in those difficult times this is the these are the words of john newton i have reason to praise him for my trials for most probably i would have been ruined without them think of that think of the trials that god has in your life right now Newton's perspective is that if, if you remove those trials, your, your heart would not be sanctified by the Spirit to any, great, any large extent. You need suffering in order to grow. You need to be suffering. And that is not saying that God is withholding Himself from you. It says He is supporting you and caring for you in that suffering so you can trust Him more and grow in your fear of God so that you can serve Him more faithfully. All of that is leading us up to the second, the second part of this growing in the fear of God is practice the fear of God by keeping his commands. Practice the fear of God. How do you grow in fear? You remember all the good things about God's character, what he's done for you. But this part is how do you grow in fear? You grow in fear by stepping out in obedience. You grow in fear by stepping out in obedience. You obey God even when it's hard, and that matures your fear. <laughs> Doesn't that sound fun? <laughs> Just like what you wanted. Well, you get to the point where you can see that even in the pressure of the circumstances, God is up to good. Each day, then, a fresh opportunity to trust and obey Him. The generous and wise God has carefully planned your journey with all its ups and downs, and He has backpacked your bag perfectly for that journey. You have just what you need for just the challenges that God has given to you. Able then, with that attitude of confidence in the Lord, able then to walk out in obedience to His commands. Not just throw up your hands, not give up, not cave in but I'm going to follow the Lord even when it's tough because he's working his grace in me. Obedience in your present desert is hard. I know that, but it is always wise. Just thinking of some of the commands today about this. Some of the commands. And, and how does this work then? We, by faith, we obey God's commands. And as we obey God's commands, our understanding of God and our fear of God deepens. Do you hear where that's going? By faith, we do what the Lord commands. But in that, in that, there is the reward of knowing God better and growing in your fear of Him. Think of the Sabbath day, for example. When we are treasuring His day properly, the more we treasure God, the heavier His glory becomes. 
That word glory is, is uh, it, it's kavod, it's, it's, it's heavy. The, the more we honor his day, the glory of God gets heavier and heavier. And the, the lightness, the trivialities, the distractions of this world get lighter and lighter and less and less significant. And you cannot convince someone of that who is not practicing the Sabbath day. They'll say, I don't believe you. I don't believe my heart can be changed. Not that way. But by steadily coming into the presence of God, seeing with the eyes of faith the sacrificial lamb on the cross and his resurrection for us, and hearing the goodness of his grace, our hearts become more and more capable of grasping the holiness of God and his glory. And the things of this world grow light. Or, as our hymn says, strangely dim. You start out with the fear of God. You practice that obedience and your understanding and your fear grows. Think of, think of the seventh commandment. Uh, keeping your heart clean of sexual images. Before our eyes or or in our mind, if you practice the fear of God, what is the promise that you get in, in the Beatitudes? You practice the purity of heart, the willing one thing, the desiring God and His own and Him only. You will see God. As you come to value this 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 gift of the seventh commandment, the gift of, of sexual purity and, and sexual use of that gift of sex within the bound of marriage only, as you become more and more convinced of the beauty of that, you come to hate the thought of sexual sin in your own body. You hate it. You despise it because you see what is so much better. So you choose to obey. You grow in your understanding of God. Your fear of him deepens and your delight in his commands improves uh, all the more. I want to stay with that one for just a moment. Uh, It is is not uncommon uh, in our day, even for children who have grown up in the church, uh, to have their minds persuaded uh, by the, the message of the world uh, that, that one's gender is fluid and one can choose a gender, uh, that it is completely acceptable, even a form of freedom and, and self-expression to, to practice homosexuality uh, or to live uh, in, as a lesbian. And there are many, many children even growing up in the church who come to say, you know what, I'm, I'm believing what the world says and not, not any longer what God says about sexuality. Have you, you've seen some. You've known, you've known some. Perhaps in your own family. I, it has struck me these last couple of days that in our families and in our church, we must do more than simply quote the seventh commandment. It is true, and it is beautiful, and it is lovely. But we must seek to be persuasive as well and use what you might even call natural law arguments and just from the way that things are made, that the way that things are evident in what God has made, that, that one is good 
and the other is not. This is, I, I thought of, of four areas these last couple of days that, that I encourage you as parents to, to make part of your teaching of your children. And here as a church, we must do that as well. Teaching about sex. We must elevate God as the wise and good creator. Wise and good, not arbitrary. Not trying to steal joy from you, but wise and good. These, these, um, these four things then. The goodness of God is seen in God-ordained differences in the sexes. The goodness of God is seen in the God-ordained differences in the sexes. In Genesis, of course, we see the, the uh, uh, male and female made in the image of God. Not one without the other, but both equally displaying the beauty of being image bearers of God. And then, of course, God's declaration that, uh, that, it, uh, that it was very good as, as, the conclu- the, as creation itself was concluded. God, think of the words of Psalm 139, God makes us, knits us together in our womb in wisdom, either male or female, and that is good. The second thing is this. We see the goodness of God in purpose. Uh, we are given, as, as men and women who become married, um, God-like regenerative capabilities. And that is a purpose for us as image bearers of God. We are like him. We are made to produce children. Um, and there is an obvious purpose. And if you choose to, uh, to have sex with someone of the same gender, you are clearly saying that the purposes of God are not good. It is not a neutral decision. It is going against this teleological argument or the argument of purpose. You have God, a godlike regenerative purpose in this world. The third, the third one is this. The goodness of God is seen in our, um, in, in our having a, a biblical view of sexuality and marriage because it is modeled after the, the marriage between Christ and the church. And that is why Christians say, in the midst of all of the confusion of our day, uh, that you do not have a marriage if you have, as it were, uh, the church marrying the church, or a a male fulfilled in the Christ figure marrying another male. You do not have a marriage. You have something else, but it's not a marriage. And so we are reflecting the beauty of, of of the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, in His relationship with His people, and that is not to be tampered with. And the fourth thing is is rather is rather obvious, and and yet and yet it, it is not spoken of very frequently today. And that is the goodness uh, in that is obvious. Uh, in, in the personal health benefits of a man being married to a woman and having one partner. This is not difficult to observe, and yet it is oftentimes, it is oftentimes uh, ig- ignored. In, in all of these things, then, we see, look with me at verses 7, eight, seven and 8. The second half of, of verse 7, the precepts are trustworthy. They're always trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be for- performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Hang on to them. 
In all of these ways, then, we are, we are coming to see, then, we are coming to see the faithfulness of God towards his people. We're coming to see uh, the, the Lord's um, forbearance of his people. The Lord's managing our sojourns in such a way that we can live for his glory and obedience to him. And then we are growing in the fear of God. And as you see the Lord working in these ways in your life, you will also notice this is practicing, practicing the, holy, uh, the, the fear of God. You will see your love for God grow and you will see your obedience for him growing. And it is a beautiful thing to watch the Spirit work in his people. We have several kids who, who are here and we're very grateful for that. And I just want to say to you kids, and bigger people as well, that God is good and his commands to you are always good and for your good. And we are free as we follow him to grow in wisdom and in the fear of God to live for his glory. That's my prayer for each of us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful psalm that tells us how we can live in this confusing age on our particular journeys. We pray that you would strengthen us to live with conviction and courage as well as with gentleness and faithfulness. Holy Spirit, how desperately we need your work in our hearts. We want to grow in our fear of the Lord, that trembling, filial a delight and wonder in who God is. Strengthen us for that goal, for that reality. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.